Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's edition of The Group Chat. I'm news correspondent at Virgin Media News, Richard Chambers, joined as ever by fellow news correspondent Zara King. Hello, how are you? Good, and Zara, uh, sorry, Gavin, not Zara. <laughs> Gavin. There's not two Zaras, only one. <laughs> only one Zara King. Well, what a shame. I'm sorry that I'm not Zara King. Uh, welcome home. Yeah. Welcome home. I'm sorry Thank about you. Gavin yeah. Good to be back. We'll talk more about your travels later on. Yeah, we will do for sure. But obviously, um, today there's only one way to start. And that is, of course, the news this week uh, that has... I'm sure has touched everyone uh, who will be listening. And that is the death of Vicky Phelan at the age of 48, the cervical check campaigner, um, the mother of two, uh, named as BBC's one of the 100 most influential women in the world. She certainly was all of that and more. Besides, um, I think actually in news, it's very rare that you'd call people that you talk to and you talk about, that they actually would, you'd, you'd eventually come around and say, well, I think I should consider her a friend. Yeah. Yeah. I think for a lot of us, totally. mm, Vicky totally. Phelan was certainly that. Uh, so we'll be talking a little bit more about Vicky amongst ourselves in a bit first. But first, we wanted to introduce someone who knew Vicky more uh, than perhaps many other people in this world. And that is Stephen Teep. His wife, Irene, uh, died in 2017. Um, he was very much connected with Vicky Phelan and the campaign for justice, which those women and their families took over the last number of years. We started off our conversation with him by asking him to tell us a little bit about who the person behind the campaigner was. Yeah, look, I suppose we're hearing a lot of talk um, over the last couple of days from people that uh, knew her very well. And I suppose the one, I suppose, characteristic that keeps on shining true is that uh, great personality um, that that Vicky had, uh, the the great crack that you would have with her. Um, Everybody I've spoken to her, whether it was journalists like yourselves um, or people that have been in meetings with her would always take the time out to, to mention, you know, um, I suppose the bit of banter and a bit of fun that um, that they would have had with her, you know, like um, it was behind the scenes. Uh, Vicky, you know, she, you guys have all um, interviewed her at um, various stages as well, you know, like she was like a very intelligent person, um, but an extremely caring person as well. Uh, she cared an awful lot for myself. Oscar and Noah and would have, um, you know, picked up the phone. A lot of our chats would have been how her, how, even over the last couple of months when I'm phoning her to see how she's doing, uh, she'd be, you know, straight on to me and how, how, how am I doing and how's Oscar and how's Noah and how's school and, you know, and if there was any kind of problems or anything ongoing here, you know, just general day-to-day stuff, she'd be straight in with the advice and, you know, always trying to lend a hand, you know. Um, yeah, she's, she's, she's going to be missed an awful lot. And, you know, I'm just one of many friends in her life and, you know, so many of her family as well that are, I'm sure there's a massive void there now. I would ask as well, Stephen, I mean, do you you were obviously brought together in such extraordinarily difficult circumstances. But what were your first impressions of Vicky the person when you met her? I think you got to, I suppose, just for, 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 for me, my situation, um, we first met nine months after I lost Irene. And um, I suppose I was in a very difficult place, you know, in a very 
um, a difficult grieving period in my life. But I was at the same time trying to manage um, my two sons' grief as well, who were also struggling. I was also trying to, to keep down a full-time job. And then, of course, the, the, the scandal uh, breaks. And, um, and then you find out, like, where the scandal for me was the day I found out Irene didn't have to die and everything that we know to do with the circle check scandal that went with that. So, you know, I wanted to campaign alongside her um, because I didn't feel she should be doing it alone. But at the same time, I needed help and support in, in obviously doing it. And, you know, like that character that she had, that strength that she had was a, was a massive rock for me to lean on, uh, a rock of support that kept me going as well, you know, and exactly what I needed um, in that point of time in my life. Um, someone like her who, I suppose, you know, given everything that she was going through, um, her own pain, um, her own fight, um, still was able to, I suppose, reach out and, you know, wrap, wrap her arm around me uh, and the boys as well at the beginning, at the beginning of this scandal, you know, and it certainly was a boost. Uh, it gave us confidence and, you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was great to have her. And Stephen, I know it's only been a couple of days and everyone's still trying to process this, but, you know, when we talk about Irene and we talk about Vicky and all the other women who've gone before them, I mean, are you angry now about the fact that Vicky is not here with us? Yeah, definitely. Um, I suppose for me, the anger is the piece that is probably creeping in, in today. Uh, Monday, when we first found out she passed, it was kind of the shock of, you know, the day that we knew was always coming um, had finally arrived. And, you know, I suppose that was, it was just, a it brought shock and we were all preparing for it. But I guess it just goes to show you, you can never prepare yourself for these things. Yesterday, you're coming to the realization that, you know, this actually happened and it's real and you wake up, God, did that, did that actually happen? And it did. And, you know, she's no longer at the end of the phone now anymore. And you're talking about her in the past tense as well. And you keep sipping up and talking about her in the present tense and correcting yourself and thinking, God, that's not right. Today, then, it's more of a lull. Um, it's kind of a quiet day today. I'm talking to a few people. Everybody is just tired and it's quiet. And now we're thinking about things more and we're thinking about that life that was taken too soon, unnecessarily. Um, like, obviously, Irene is always on my mind and my children's minds as well. And you're thinking so close to... Uh, poor Lindsay's passing, also another um, person, woman, who didn't need to leave either or shouldn't have um, passed away. So, um, yeah, anger for sure. Zara is definitely uh, an emotion that's um, relevant, I think, relevant for us all to be feeling when we think about this. And Stephen, sorry, can I just ask you then, how did you explain to your children what had happened to Vicky? They'd already lost their own mother. Do they understand the process? Do they understand what, what has gone on? Or are they far too young to process that? You know what? They're actually nine, seven. They've been through more than many adults I know. I've been, I suppose, for the last couple of weeks and months, I've been kind of building the boys up, talking more about um, Vicky's illness and how it's the same cancer that their mom had. And uh, it just happens that I was away on Monday when, when the news broke. So I actually didn't see the boys until yesterday. And they were staying with their grandparents. So I had them, I asked them to make sure they turn off the news and uh, the radio when the boys were around. So I wanted to tell them myself. Um, so I didn't actually get to tell them until three o'clock yesterday. And, you know, I actually told them in the car because I did. I was thinking, like, sit them down and tell them face to face. I was like, no, I'm kind of building it up to be huge and 
you know, maybe maybe a car journey on the way home from school might be more neutral to told them. And yeah, like Oscar straight away um, started crying. He got it. Noah was sad, but by the time we got home five minutes later, he had processed it and now he was crying with the sadness. And, you know, we just keep talking about it. Um, like for Oscar, it's interesting. It's very in a very depressing way, but he got back out of bed at half nine last night and came down to me because he wanted to talk about it more because he couldn't sleep. And his thoughts were with um, all for um, Amelia and Dara. And his sadness was for them. And it would break your heart, but the way he worded it was, you know, they're now like me. Uh, they don't have a mom anymore. So I now know exactly how they feel. And, you know, um, for a nine-year-old to be able to process it, like that and keep it so real and relevant um do you know it's very upsetting but do you know it's the way i have dealt with grief with oscar noah communications king and being able to talk about this is i suppose the only way i get to deal with it with them you know so um yeah they're dealing with it um they're very sad as well today and um, both came out of school early now today um and do you know we're we're just gonna do what we do eat cake sweets, junk, watch a movie and just try and cheer ourselves up as much as we can. Uh, it's amazing the empathy that, that people of that age can have given the, the trauma that your two boys have gone through. Um, you, you sort of touched on it there, but I suppose, Stephen, you're in a somewhat unusual situation or, or relatively unusual because so many of the other faces that we've known connected to this scandal, the likes of Vicky, Ruth, Lindsay, Emma and others, they, of course, were, were first-hand victims, whereas you are not out of remove, but obviously you're, you're a male face to this whole campaign because you've already been through your loss and your trauma. You can sort of hear it in your voice there, but it sounds like this is a very raw way for you to revisit everything that happened to you and your boys as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, when, like, obviously I was very close to Vicky and when I got that news that uh, she had lost um, that fight on Monday, it really did, I suppose, bring back the all those emotions from five, five and a bit years ago um, to that day um irene died and do you know it was it just really brought all dug up all those feelings again and just brought about to the, the the front and um yeah you just get you just you just end up reliving them all over again and yeah i'm a male voice in this um i remember when the scandal uh broke and i found out irene was um a part of this a part of the audit i remember um the tarnish at the time was simon Coveney, and he lives around the corner from me here and I, I managed to reach out to his office here in Carrigaline to call over to me because I was fuming, wanted answers and I insisted he come to my house and the reason I insisted he came to my house was because I wanted to tell him that when all the mistakes are made and all the battles are lost I wanted him to see firsthand um, this is what you're left with widowers and motherless children and I guess that's the place that I sit um, is at the very, very end of the road when all the mistakes have been made and all of the battles have been lost. And Stephen, when you hear, obviously, Vicky's words have echoed around the country over the last number of days that she didn't want to be eulogised. She wanted accountability. She wanted action. When you hear what, how the response to her death has been, I suppose, taken on by politicians and what they have actually said about that, what do you make about that? How does that make you feel? To be honest with you, I think it's just the same old 
um, that we constantly experience. And this is why Vicky doesn't want the big massive parades or anything like that. She wants action. And right now, yesterday particularly, the doll, it was words yeah. and nothing but words. And words mean absolutely nothing to Vicky. Uh, they never did mean anything to her. No more did they mean anything to me or Lorraine Walsh or anybody else who campaigns. Um, action, that's it. You know, uh, results, that's all that matters. Um, that's key. That's That's everything. Um, that's the point of what we do. We just don't do it just so we have opportunities to speak. Uh, we do it so actions actually happen and results come from the actions. And that's um, that's why she said that. It's, it makes perfect sense for us because we're sick of words. Words mean nothing to us um, anymore. It's really the actions that we need to see at this point. Finally, Stephen, I know you and I spoke about this yesterday and I'd like to end on a, on a positive note to pay tribute to Vicky because, you know, it is that gorgeous kind of wickish, cheeky sense of humour that she had, didn't she? And maybe a lot of people didn't know that about her because they saw her having very serious conversations. But you have very fond memories of a lot of laughter. I mean, I know when I went to interview her, she would be hearty laughing and then the camera would go on and we'd have the serious conversation. But she was bloody great crack, wasn't she? Oh, great crack. And I actually, it's funny because I've had... Um, like obviously before this scandal broke, like like Vicky, myself, Lorraine, like all of us, like like journalists and media, like we would have never have met. And um, you know, having these podcasts or anything is a, is 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 a world alien to us. You know, um, we normally see this world just from our sofas, and going around meeting you guys has been, you know, an I suppose an incredible surreal experience, and it's 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 been quite humbling the last couple of days because I've gotten so many messages from friends um, that have met Vicky along the way. But I've gotten more messages from people like yourselves, like Sarah, you, you um, and many others, all you guys, and all just passing on your condolences. And every single one of you um, at one stage or another um, tell me a story about what happens off the screen with Vicky and a conversation we had. And you were only telling me that one yesterday, Zara, as well. And I think Vicky just loves to, do you know, like it's was so much bad. And we used to talk about this constantly, like so much bad has happened in our lives that we took any opportunity just to have a laugh. Yeah. And like Vicky and myself mm -hmm. would constantly go for a sneaky gin, you know, <laughs> if we were going for a meeting or after a meeting or before. Just to, just to say amongst ourselves, we just had a sneaky gin there now and a bit of crack just to lighten the mood, you know. And um, that was it. It was just, you know, we there was so much bad in our lives that we, uh, I suppose, at every opportunity just tried to put a smile on people's faces and on our own as well, you know. So, yeah, I think that's the part that um, everybody loved her most because it was how she connected with people. And if your gift to connect people is to make them smile, then isn't any wonder she is loved as much as she is. Okay. Here, Stephen. I think that's yeah. what the Vicky feeling we're going to all remember as people. But for now, Stephen, look after yourself, look after, look after Oscar, look after uh, yourselves over the next while because this is going to be obviously going to be a difficult time. But thank you so much for sharing your thank thoughts you. and your feelings with us today. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you very much. Stephen Teep there speaking to us just a short while ago. Uh, Stephen, like Vicky, I would say, is probably one of those people you wish you got to, knew, to know and in circumstances which are so... Yeah much different to the way completely things were. Mm. Yeah. Sarah, um, you've been covering Vicky Field in, in so many different ways over the last number of years. Mm. Uh, I think it's 
probably worth taking people back to the start of this because I think yeah. a lot of that does get lost in the overall conversation. It does. And I was thinking about it, Richard, uh, during the week when all of this happened, like, and I'm, we're going to play this clip because I just want to show you how simple it was that what Vicky ended up changing for women's healthcare in Ireland began in one tiny moment while she was in hospital for an appointment and she was feeling just a little bit curious. This is the first time I met Vicky Feelin and this is what she had to say. And Vicky, at what stage did you come to realise that you had cancer back in 2011 and no one had told you about it? Myself and my mother were in this treatment room waiting for me to go down for my biopsy. You know, you're going from admissions up to this room and I had my medical file. She was up on the shelf and I just said to Mama, sure, here, I may as well start looking through this as you do. Well, I do anyway. And I started looking through the medical file and I was reading all the letters. And then I suddenly saw this letter from the cervical screening programme. It was so clinical and it was so, it was even, there was a little paragraph at the end of it about, you know, it said, you know, your 2011 smear result, uh, original result, no abnormality detected. And then on review, um, you know, query squamous cell carcinoma. That's the cancer I have, the type of, and I said, Jesus, you know, that means I had cancer. And at the end of it then it said, you know, basically, you know, the legal speak really about the clinician, you know, uh, about how to tell the patient and whether or not to tell the patient. And that's when I thought, oh, here now, there's something fishy going on here. And I just didn't like the sound of it. Um, and the fact that I had never been shown this letter at all. Isn't that just remarkable? If she hadn't been sitting there, if Vicky Phelan hadn't just opened up her file that day and decided to look through it, we would not mm. have known what if, we went on. Women wouldn't have yeah. known the circumstances. If she didn't just have that sense of curiosity yeah. and then discover what she'd found and then pursue action and then to reject the idea of a confidentiality clause, mm. which was part of the whole scandal at the time as well. Yeah. If that hadn't happened... And if she, if each of those things had gone differently, then you might have had those 221 plus mm -hmm. uh, women, all of whom affected by this, all of whom had cancer that may have been preventable, all acting in silos, all not knowing that the other existed and not knowing that mm. by unifying that they could try and bring about some real change. Like even to see the letter, I know, and she gave me a copy of the letter that even to see if anyone's watching it on TV, you'll have seen the letter coming up on screen. Like for her to have opened that and made that discovery. And Kino Carl, her solicitor, said to me earlier in the week, the minute it happened, she had this instinct, I, I can't be the only one, I'm not mm. the only one. Mm. And to have the like that insight and to, you know, to pursue it. And by the time she left the High Court that first day, there was 14 other women. And then it would go on to grow to 221 and then yeah, plus. Snowballed, yeah. Yeah. I think when we were just talking to Stephen about this there, the person who Vicky Phelan was mm. and the sense of humour and the devilment about her and she was always mad for the gossip as well. Yeah. I think we all have like different memories of her and I was actually preparing something for, for something else um, to talk about her and uh, I just went back through messages from her from the last couple of years. In particular, it was actually around the start of the pandemic mm. and she was messaging me nonstop. There was literally, I think there's about... It's probably like a three week period where I'd say we chatted every single day. Oh. And um, the biggest memory I'll have of Vicky Phelan and the person who I'll remember is just because literally every single day, it doesn't matter what was going on with her, she would ask, how's your brother getting on? How's your mom getting on? Because she was very conscious that they were medically vulnerable in the pandemic. Yeah. And she was always, always would ask about that. And then I was having a tough day at one point and she was just like, look, look after yourself, get your sleep, sleep. We need you to do this. Somebody like Vicky Phelan says that. I yeah. know. Yeah. Somebody like Vicky yeah. Phelan like, says that too. Like I, I looked. Said, I, was, yeah. I was actually sitting in the car the other day, and I was because I was asked, to, like, "Oh, you might say something about Vicky at some point." And I was like, "Yeah, I'll have a look back to the message." I just sat there and I just wept mm. reading that. I was just like, "That is exactly who Vicky was. That she would always, 
she'd she'd ask, she'd when you were interviewing her, she'd always reference you by name. Mm-hmm. She'd always speak to the person who was by name. Yeah. Yeah. She'd ask questions about their family. She'd ask questions about you. And she would always be thinking about you and looking out for you. And I just think that for a person like that, who has gone yeah. through absolutely everything, it's just extraordinary. It's one of the, which I think is remarkable about her because, you know, we, we spoke to Stephen about some of the names that we do know, but there are so many more names that yeah. we don't know because mm-hmm. they've they've chosen to, to keep it low profile because they don't want the burden of publicity that comes with it all. And when you think about, and again, Stephen's touched on it there, the fact that she had to juggle a terminal illness with her family life. And like, you know, she was she, she was on Twitter asking, you know, what do I do with kids who are stuck at home who aren't going to school? How, how do I keep them going? She mm-hmm. was even asking, my, my wife is a lecturer in a teacher training college. She was getting onto her going, here, give us a few tips for, you know, how do you sort yeah. of have some sort of educational experience for kids who aren't in school? Um, but to be doing all of that, like to, to juggle family life and to juggle the fact that you're preparing for terminal illness and what that's going to bring and her experimental medicine that she was going across the ocean to do, and still to have the time to pursue the advocacy that she did, to, to still be this tireless face of the 221 group and to pursue other stuff like Dying With Dignity, which, yeah. which, which other people would have been completely at liberty to just let go because they've got other priorities. Totally. So this is the thing, Zara, yeah. isn't it? That she just, she would never give up on anything. If there no. was something more that could be done, something more that could be asked, or if there was something that she could do, Vicky Feeling would be all over it. Well, yeah, and I think I've spoken about this during the week again, but just to reiterate, like the private stuff that Vicky did for people, like, and, you know, you were mentioning women's names who we don't know publicly. There were, you know, women who Vicky and I spoke about who she was helping behind the scenes, people that she was really advocating for in in a big way to get on to, for example, the Pembro trial. This was a drug Mm -hmm. that had given Vicky so much um, extra time. And, you know, there was... um, a woman in particular that she had contacted me about that we, you know, she was like, this woman's going to have to go public to get access to this drug. And like the woman did not want to go public at all. You know, she really was very unwell and didn't want to have to do it. And, you know, Vicky was the one who, you know, kind of said to her, look, unfortunately, this is the, and it's disgraceful that we live in a country and we live in a situation where people have to go public. We did a story with that woman and um, she eventually did get access to the drug. But Vicky was the one who advocated and helped for that to, to work out for that lady. Yeah. And she did that for so many people. Mm. Um, and like it's, it's kind of like what you said. I do feel really privileged to have had an opportunity to know Vicky Phelan, actually. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that uh, I will cherish probably for the rest of my life, just to have met somebody like that who was so... Um, just so incredibly kind, but so remarkable. And actually, you know, even I suppose small anecdotes that we all have, I, you know, I interviewed her one day and we ended up going for a coffee in the Ashling Hotel afterwards and we ended up chatting for like two hours and I was really late coming back here to edit my... Like no, I was really <laughs> late coming back here to edit my story for the news. But I thought, you know what? I was like, when would you get a chance to sit down with Vicky and have a coffee with her for two hours? Mm-hmm. I was like, the news desk can wait for the hour. Like, I just... I totally cherish that. And we had such a gorgeous conversation that day. And, you know, she really adored her family and she she lived for her children. And I think it was really that they kept her going for as long as it did. Yeah, and it is. It is. She was one of those people who, you, like, if you did have the opportunity to have any time with her, you would want to spend more time with her. Yeah. And as much time as possible. Yeah. One thing Stephen mentioned there about how it, when it was all starting for him and he invited Simon Coveney into his house. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Mm. Um, and that's just how raw it is for people and how accountable they wanted politicians and the people who held the levers of power in this country to be. Mm. So everybody will have seen, I think, that that quote, which I referenced in the interview um, from Vicky Field. I think she gave it to, to the Sunday Independent um, a couple of years ago about how she didn't want aides de camp at the funeral, didn't want your tributes or your, you know, your apologies and all that sort of stuff. What she wanted was action. She wanted accountability and she wanted, you know, the difference to be made so yeah. that this wouldn't happen again. Mm. 
Stephen was talking about how the fact in the doll, there was a lot of words. Mm. I mean, what is actually being done politically, Gavin? Because you were working on this. Yeah, well, it, it was actually just when when Stephen said it, I was kind of glad that he did think it as well because it actually <laughs> a little bit of it stuck in my craw a bit hearing the the doll tributes yesterday because. Everyone knows those lines now about, you know, not wanting tributes and not wanting aides to come at the funeral. And a lot of the politicians <coughs> repeated those well, lines this was it, to justify they, the they tributes. All, they were it was almost writing. like they all individually yeah. thought that they were the ones who had sole license to do it. So you had like eight or nine or ten speeches and almost all of them, almost all of them, all quoted the line saying, I don't want tributes. They mm-hmm. said in, in a in a round of tributes in the doll. Um, whether she's achieved what she set out, I mean, it's all, it, it's dreadful that she died with it still being a work in progress. But some of the fundamental things that she looked for have not happened. Um, If you think about, you know, what the country was transfixed by when her case went to the High Court and when she first became a face that we all knew in public life, what was the first thing she wanted? She wanted people never have to go to the High Court the same way that she did. Mm. Um, Has that happened? Well, no, because we, we know the names of of Emma and of Lindsay and of Ruth, Ruth, Ruth Morrissey, who didn't alone have to go to the, to the High Court, but to the Supreme Court yeah. in her case. And the government said that it was never going to force anyone to do that again and that it would it would settle and then pursue the lab separately to spare the women all of that grief. Didn't happen. The government set up a cervical check tribunal, which was supposed to be a non-adversarial, you know, instead of it being plaintiff versus defendant, it was supposed to be a slightly more collaborative thing. When the deadline for cases to that closed earlier this year, a grand total of 25 cases had been pursued. By comparison, one of the labs alone, uh, the Quest Lab, uh, was named as a defendant in 35 cases in the High Court last year alone. So they're voting with their feet. The, the, the tribunal has not set out what it was supposed to do. And the other thing, and you mentioned, Zara, the, the letter that uh, Vicky Phelan stumbled onto. Mm. And in the clip, she openly discussed you know, this idea that you know they, they even discussed whether you should tell the patient that there'd been some error in their care. Yeah. That's that's called open disclosure. And one of the promises the government made after that whole scandal was that they were going to put that in law. And four years later, it's not in law. It passed its first stage in the Dáil in 2019. Then the election happened. Then the pandemic happened. It got back to the Oireachtas Health Committee in March of this year. Stephen Donnelly then conceded that it still didn't do enough. We're now told it's going to be back in the Dáil in the coming weeks. Let, let's hope it gets there. The HSE board is still resisting that. They're still mm-hmm. telling the, uh, the Department of Health and, the, and Stephen Donnelly not to do that. The one thing, the idea that someone should have the right to know if there's been some error or some oversight in their care is still not on the books and it's still not there. And I hope these things happen soon so that you can say that her death wasn't in vain, but we're not there yet. Mm. I think when I was listening to it, Zara, yesterday, it sounded to me from a lot of the politicians, I know they'll probably deny this, but it felt like they were much talking about something which is in the past. Mm-hmm. Whereas for so many people, this is an absolutely living thing. They haven't gotten what they wanted and what they were promised they would get. So that is the thing, isn't it, Sarah, that this isn't over, that her fight no. will have to go on. No, it's not over. The fight continues and Gabriel Scali is due to publish his report into um, how his initial recommendations were implemented and that's going to come out in two weeks' time and we will come back to this on the podcast and we'll talk about that at length when it does come out and maybe we'll see if Gabriel might come chat to us, actually. Um, Gabriel Scali said himself the other day that Vicky Phelan has made remarkable inroads in women's healthcare, but the truth of the matter is that there are still things that need to be resolved. And, you know, he pointed to that idea of dragging women through the courts and that invasive process of them having to dis- discuss everything down to their sex lives um, with their partners, that that is, that is, you know, demoralising and it is unacceptable. And that still continues on now. Sure does. So we'll, uh, 
at this moment, we'll take the opportunity, I suppose, to express our condolences to Jim, to Amelia, to Dara, to the Phelan family, her extended family, and to everybody, I suppose, out there who has been affected by the life that was lived by Vicky Phelan. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back to the group chat. Uh, the world's premier sporting tournament and one of the cultural gems. Every four years, the World Cup is on. And my God, you would not know it. Like, this is where we should be like kids in a sweet shop. This is the time of the quadrennial cycle where you should be buying the special edition of 442 that's got the preview magazine so you can sort of, you know, familiarise yourself with all these, you know, arcane, mystical, exotic names of Where's South American Where's my sticker album? Yeah. Oh. See, I did wonder, did, like, was I not totally across it because maybe it's not really my vibe, the World Cup, but are you telling me that everyone's not really super yeah, across it? It's just so not flat. a vibe there. Not okay. so uh, to the point where even the Qataris have had to uh, encourage the locals to act as if they are basically like there's there's like a Qatari Barmy army of England fans knocking yes. around in guitar you know singing songs about Ungerland trying to act as if there's some sort of atmosphere there which uh, okay. at present does not exist so I'm, I'm going to take the position of I want to be clear to all the listeners in case lest there be any confusion <laughs> is about, there any doubt is there any doubt about my <laughs> knowledge of, of soccer the beautiful game um, the beautiful game so let me be the, the voice of you listener who doesn't also really understand what's going on here first of all how did it end up in Qatar Richard dodgy dealings is what happened okay. um, that's not a controversial thing to say no, it's been very much no. accepted that the Qatar World Cup bid process was a disgrace. Right. But the big problem is what Qatar is, what it stands for and why there should never be a World Cup there in the first place. And let me quickly go through the list. Rumours of slave, la slave labour. Right. Potentially hundreds if not thousands of worker deaths building the stadiums which people will be kicking a leather ball around for the next couple of weeks. You have LGBT rights. Do not exist there. In fact, reports there today that Qatari LGBT people are being paid by the Qatari government to rat out other people who are gay. Uh, women's rights, absolutely pathetic in that country. Uh, they do not really exist, I would say. Mm -hmm. Death penalty, people could be sentenced to death by stoning, which is against the UN Convention on Human Rights. 
surveillance, mass surveillance happens everywhere. You'd have already seen, I'm sure some of you might have seen the clip of the Danish football mm. uh, crew who were stopped and told that they couldn't do this. Mm. Uh, Grant Wall, who's an American football journalist, was stopped taking a photograph of the World Cup slogan on a wall. Yeah, which a is not, daring that's journalism. not an offensive piece of like material. That's, that's a, a corporately endorsed slogan on the wall of a media centre that Awful. he totally couldn't photograph. Human rights, uh, racism apparently in terms of workers' rights as well. The overall temperature of where the ga- gra- gra- uh, where the games we played, mm. it's already like 38 degrees there. It's not where you play football. So mm. if you discounted all of those things, the slave labour, the workers' rights, the deaths of hundreds of workers, mm. Let's great, place for, yeah. great place for World uh, Cup. Great place for World Cup. The summertime, because people will also wonder, oh, why is it happening at this time of year? I was just about year? to say, yeah. The other, th- I mean, the thing about this time of year... Because I was wondering, sorry, was it a delay because of COVID or something? No, though? not because of it COVID. It was meant to be it, on it, well, time. When it was originally planned, the, the intention was to have it in, in summertime. And they were right. like, oh, we'll have air-conditioned stadiums. It'll be fine. And... This was a thing that they were genuinely pursuing, having an mm. open air stadium, which was air conditioned so that you could still play football without, you know, incurring heat stroke doing so. Right. And then they realised they couldn't do that. So basically they are playing it in their winter so that the temperatures are at least slightly more manageable for the rest of the world okay, trying to play a high intensity game. Still in the high 30s. Oh, right. But it's the high 30s versus the high 40s. But the end result being that because they have to play the World Cup in November and December, it means that all of the other professional leagues in England and Scotland and France and Germany and Italy and Portugal and everywhere else um, have all had to be suspended for about six weeks so that the World Cup can take place, which has untold knock-on consequences for the game in all those other domestic leagues as well, which is also part of, aside from the the difficulty of you know getting behind or getting enthused about an event that's taking place in such a you know bizarre environment but it's also just such an, an unintuitive time of year that like the World Cup final will be on on the Sunday before Christmas Day like that's that's not your standard what? you know looking I'm forward to what's going on I'm all for football Christmas this is just wrong it just doesn't make any sense and the absolute contortions that world football has had to do to put on this tournament in a place which has no history of football mm. which has there, there's no the, 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 the BS line from FIFA about growing the global game right in a tiny country the size of Wexford um, that has no history of the game mm. that is not that is so insular that it isn't going to spread to the region around that there's yeah. other if they wanted to spread it to Muslim world countries which is a good and noble thing to do mm. there's places like Morocco there's places like Algeria mm. there are Indonesia a million mm. different places which have a great cultural heritage of football the whole thing across the entire Gulf so that you can have this idea of spreading it across the entire region instead of this one micro petrol state where there isn't going to be this history of it afterwards is it going to damage the game then? The game is already damaged. The international oh, right. game is absolutely okay. in the. It's up. It's up. I'm, I'm going to say it, it's oh, up shit creek. It's up shit creek. <laughs> oh, we, can we? I, 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 they can bleep it if they want, but it is the the, the way that the, that the global authorities of football have treated the most precious and most idolised tournament in all of sport, the most watched television event ever, anywhere, mm. is a disgrace. It's a complete disgrace. I'm not going to try and guilt guilt people away from watching it because people want to watch it. They can watch. Are it. you going to watch it? Um, I would say I'm not going to go and seek out games in the way that I would. Like ordinarily around World Cup, been invited to watch a game, have we? What was that invite? Yeah, I saw that. I'm not, I, I, Wales versus the United States is not on my calendar. Um, but like, no, normally when there's World Cup, and you might remember this, are even when the Euros were on. Sending an RSVP email to that one. Then, so <laughs> but no, totally during going. the Euros, like I plan days around. Yeah, what, I, I want to see all three games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah not yeah. doing. I was that. the thing you would do yeah. another tour. Not doing yeah. that. But what do you, do you think though that when when it kicks off and as soon as there's an upset, let's say that Iran beat England or hold them to a draw in their first group game, yeah. and suddenly then it kind of like from the footballing perspective that it kind of suddenly develops an agenda. 
Do you think you fall into it then? Because I'm maybe. not sure that I will. Maybe, maybe when things are on, you might get drawn in or, or there'll be a game on and you'll say, oh, who's mm. happening there, here? There doesn't even seem to be any songs. Remember, like, I mean, I like the, the England song. Yeah, good, there's, isn't no it? Yeah. Lines. there's no world in Mo There's no Vindaloo. There's, there's no nothing for this one. I, I do want to, one more thing just on, on the list of, on the rap sheet, effectively, for guitar. Anytime there's a major football tournament or anything major happens, there's an increase instances of sexual violence and domestic violence. Mm. In Qatar, and this has been raised by Human Rights Watch, uh, women who face sexual violence, whether by their partners, colleagues, friends or strangers, can find themselves prosecuted in that country for extramarital sex. There have been several recent cases where the victim of a sexual or physical assault, according to, this is from The Athletic, uh, uh, assault accused of extramarital sex instead of receiving physical and emotional support, they've been the victim of further assault. So the crime carries a prison sentence, the crime, inverted commas, carries a prison sentence, uh, or if the defendant is Muslim, the prospect of flogging, being beaten repeatedly with a stick or a whip. This is a game and you see FIFA. Oh my God. I'm I'm actually so (laughs) exercised I'm knocking over microphones. FIFA there talking about peace and Gianni Infantino, he's the president of FIFA, did a thing at the G20 summit there the other day where he was like, This was mortifying. He came out and he said, for the duration of the World Cup, for the month that it's on, there should be a a ceasefire in Ukraine uh, that Russia and Ukraine should cease hostilities. having a ceasefire all year round? How about that, Gianni, instead of thinking that football should be a reason for doing it? But this nonsense, they're they're, they're saying, well, we shouldn't politicise football. FIFA politicises football. FIFA in giving... Gianni Infantino accepted a medal from uh, Vladimir Putin after hosting the last World Cup in 2018 in Russia, which is in itself was a disgrace in many ways. They'd already invaded Crimea. Yeah. Yeah, he got a medal and he called it the best World Cup ever. I'm sorry, I'm actually in genuine disbelief here. I'm sorry, did that actually happen? When we're not in the middle of a podcast, go and look up the number of civil honours received by Sepp Blatter, who was the previous president. Remember, I did cut a VT on Sepp Blatter being wide the mark there yeah. <laughs> that's the legal even he has said since that giving it to Qatar was a mistake and if he has decided that this was a dreadful idea but was it not you, his idea to give it to them in the first place no? yeah but, but you know better late than never in coming around to it uh, we mentioned in passing and just on the topic of the, the dreadful treatment of women in some parts of the, the Arab world uh, and I mentioned Iran in passing who play in, yes. in their first game mm. um, we've been asked to, to draw attention or to do a little bit of a deep dive in what has been going on in Iran we've discussed it more recently in the last few weeks and some reports in the last few days that they've, they're going to sentence 15,000 women mm. to death I, I was so I'm off at the moment. That's just why if you're watching it on TV, I'm wearing a jumper, which is very cozy, but not at all what I would wear for work. <laughs> um, but what has happened is that there was. I'm sure everybody's seen it because I'm sure a lot of people have been tagged on it on Instagram. Yeah. They might have seen it. There's 15,000 women to be sentenced to death. Mm. Now, so I went and I took one of my days off, and I was like, I need to figure out exactly what's happening. So I went to a couple of different authorities on news in Iran uh, to figure out what was happening and what is actually happening. Is 15,000 women and protesters are currently being detained by the state of Iran, which is a huge number of people. Now, what has been said is that the um, parliament of Iran has said that they should be shown no mercy. So the the parliament, the the only people who can sentence people to death is the judiciary. That's the judges. Mm-hmm. Courts can do that. Mm-hmm. Parliament can't. The parliament has told the judiciary not to show mercy. The first person to be sentenced to death for the protests in Iran is an unnamed person, which is bad. And that there's no transparency over that. But that happened on Sunday evening. That person was sentenced to death. 15,000 people are still waiting to hear what's going to happen to them. That doesn't rule out the prospect that they could, and you could see more people sentenced to death, but it has not happened yet. 
Um, I think in any of these situations, especially in a country with such a controlled media as Iran, it is very difficult to get good information out of it. It is really good and it's very inter interesting. And I think it's important that people are trying to continue to show, shine a spotlight on it. But I think the information needs to be factual as well. But it's something to watch. The protests are continuing. As we said the last time we talked about it, and we're going to talk about it properly, 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 uh, hopefully within the next couple of episodes. But the protests have not died down whatsoever. They're continuing in college campuses and schools and streets. And you're actually seeing more and more groups rolled into it. So something that I'm absolutely dead certain that we're going to keep on coming back to. Uh, and it is very much firmly on our agenda. We will make America safe again. We will make America glorious again. And we will make America great again. Thank you very much. God bless you all. Thank you. There you go. Live from Mar-a-Lago, Florida, the confirmation of the worst kept secret in the world that Donald Trump is running for president again in <laughs> 2024. Let we know where he got the tank because he's seen a lot of colour. Yeah. The last couple of years, clearly. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Mar-a-Lago will do that to people. Yeah. I got burned on my first day. Never recovered. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's running for president again. Nobody's surprised. No. He's all but said it multiple times at this point. He comes into it uh, with a lot choppier road to back to the White House than perhaps anybody would have anticipated mm -hmm. after the Republicans got an absolute mauling in many ways, particularly his Republicans, the ones that he handpicked, whether that be mm -hmm. a celebrity doctor or celebrity American footballer. Yeah. Didn't, well, he might, American footballer might still win. But anyway, not good. They have another guy who might win against that of him, but... Donald Trump backed into a corner is dangerous. Yeah. Uh, America safe again is such an, like, I mean, an outrageous statement from somebody who has stoked so much anger in America. Uh, it's a, like, reasonable chance, though, that, like, this time around, that, like, he, he loses in the primary, which could be a very interesting prospect. So instead of it being losing in a general election and then sort of claiming that it was all rigged again, there's a fair chance he could be, like, beaten well, by his own this time. Could well. I think you have to say, and I think it's very easy for us to get swept up into the thing of, geez, he mightn't win this time, or there's this other guy, Ron DeSantis, who might mm. beat him. Mm. He will start as the overwhelming favourite. It doesn't matter. And obviously, if you went back to 2014 and we were looking at who would become the yeah, president then, true. Jeb Bush. What happened to Jeb Bush, Zara? <laughs> Nothing happened to Jeb Bush. You haven't heard of Jeb Bush in the last eight years, have you? But anyway, Zara, closer to home. Yes. I, we could, I could have said something like we're moving from one turkey to another, but oh, I don't uh, want to do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, I, love, I, love I don't it. want to do it. Well, well Gav, are we worried there's going to be no turkeys for Christmas? What's happening with uh, the bird flu? Not that there's no turkeys for Christmas. Obviously, this is all about the concerns around an outbreak of um, avian flu uh, at at least one, at the time of recording, at least one turkey farm on the border between Monaghan and Fermanagh, which was resulted in something of a turkey call on that premises and in some nearby ones as a matter of safekeeping. There is something of a kind of a poultry lockdown in nearby facilities where they're trying to make sure that it doesn't spread. Um, but the understanding Turkey from... lockdown. There you go. Those are words I never thought I'd say, but here we are. Uh, 2022 has been a strange year. Um, <laughs> but no, the, the assurance seems to be that this is not going to have a material uh, impact on the supply of turkeys. Obviously, it's, it's very bad news for that farm and everyone connected to it, but that it shouldn't have any wider spread consequences and that overall the supply of poultry for, for this winter should be okay. In fact, you, sh you shouldn't well, yeah, no, question, yeah, I was talking to Charlie. Talking to the yeah. minister about it. I was talking to the agriculture minister, Charlie McConnell, who I'd like to thank for waiting on a Zoom call for 30 minutes the other day. Wow. <laughs> um, we had a couple uh, of technical issues, it's yeah. fine. Um, but no, he just said, look, yeah, he wasn't really that worried about the turkeys for Christmas. And he also just said, reminded people to cook their turkeys properly. Which okay. actually, every Christmas we do end up having these kind of safe warnings about the you yeah. don't cook the turkey in your house, no. do you? But I do know that it's in the rule supposed to be like 20 minutes plus 20 minutes oh, I couldn't, per pound. I couldn't now. I couldn't. Yeah. Come here, crucial question for both of you. And when are you putting the tree up? <laughs> oh, uh, not this week. Um, we have a, I don't want to say, uh, 
don't want to sort of take my childhood traditions and then apply them to my my new family home. But we've always had a sort of a rule of thumb in the house that I grew up in, which is that we don't do any Christmas stuff or put up de- decorations or trees or anything like that until after my birthday, which is next Sunday week. So because it, my birthday so is... By the way, it was your birthday next Sunday. It was your birthday last week. Happy well, birthday indeed. to both yeah, of you. Thanks for all the good wishes. Yeah, well, so his birthday was, next his birthday was last Sunday. Mine is Sunday week. Yes. And uh, that, that's four weeks to Christmas. So that was always, when we were growing up, that was our kind of rule of thumb. And that, oh, we'll throw it up after you the birthday. It strikes me slightly early. Like, I don't, I, Richard, I, I, I don't want to get into this. We put our tree up when we lived together for the last two years on your birthday, which was the 13th of November. Which is six weeks before Christmas. Very early. It's too early for me normally. I don't want to judge anybody we can do whatever we want but like that is very early but we but did love didn't, we, didn't you collaborate you collaborated in putting up the tree no, in sorry, your own yeah, yeah, it was like like a it's my birthday let's put the Christmas tree up but it was lockdown so we needed we had something. nothing it was we miserable yeah. <laughs> okay. Dublin we, 15 we was had, dark at that time we had the worst Christmas tree though wasn't it it was horrible actually, every Richard laugh tweeted a picture of the Christmas tree one year and somebody was like oh stay that tree man <laughs> he was like so offended he was like leave my tree alone but it was actually I'm just going to go back on my last two weeks rant about social media that tells you all about it why are you talking about my tree but it was from the middle aisle in a certain supermarket it was it was a pretty weak tree, but we loved don't, it though. Don't mock middle aisle shopping. I'm getting a real tree for the first time ever this year. You're putting yours up. At the 4th of December, I set the date, the 4th okay. of December. But I really want to go, oh, if anyone nice. knows actually, like message me on social media, let me know where is a good place to buy a tree that isn't like a supermarket car park because I want to go somewhere where I feel like I have an authentic tree experience. That's Whatever a, that that's looks a like. Bit Sounds illegal. <laughs> it's up to Wicktail Mountains or the axes are No, I don't know. I want someone else <laughs> to cut it down for me. And so, like, yeah. I want to go and buy it from a place that cuts it down, but, like, I want but, it to be very festive. But a lot of the, the places with the supermarket car parks, they're often for a good cause that have been run by a local secondary school. Oh, are they? I didn't for know a charity. That. There you yeah. go. Okay, well, maybe the I will most go festive to, Okay, well, then maybe I will it's go to a local grinch. supermarket. I oh, know, I didn't know that. Fourth your local businesses are. What are you putting yours up? Uh, I'd say I would say early December. Wouldn't be far off you now, I'd say. Fourth is good. It's not a weekend, is it? Sunday. There you go. Three weeks before Christmas Day, so. That's your date. We're all in. Let it's us know when enough. you're putting your tree up or if you have it up already. Oh, yeah. This is the great already. debate. 16th of... Oh, we God. had it up on the 13th last year with no shame. All right. On that note, that is all we have time for in this group chat. It's getting too festive <laughs> too early for my liking. Uh, Zara King, Gavin Riley, always a pleasure. Thanks, Thank Richard. you. See you next week. Bye. Bye.